And welcome back to another episode of Colote. This is your host, Rabbi Hill Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Colote, and it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Rabbi Ben-Sion Schaefer of theschmooze.com. Um, Rabbi Schaefer is someone that I've listened to many times before we connected virtually um, on on many different platforms, and uh, I even uh, get to see him on Chesky Ida's WhatsApp status every so often. So to so get some gems over there, give a shout-out to Chesky Ida and all the great things that he's doing with the Lake Daf Yomi. But um, we're going to hear a little bit about Rabbi Shaver's background, some of the things that he does, um, Hashkafa, that he's learned from his rebellion, and we will dive deep on 10 very dumb mistakes that very smart people make. To sponsor a Colote episode, email me at sponsorcolote at gmail.com. Once again, to sponsor an episode, email me at sponsorcolote at gmail.com. But without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Ben-Sion Schaefer is the founder of TheSchmooze.com, a life-changing Musser share that is available on Torah Anytime, The Schmooze Podcast, and The Schmooze app. His newest book, the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make has already sold 20,000 copies and has taken the Jewish world by storm. Rabbi Schaefer, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Kempstein, thank you. Welcome. Hi. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, um, your yeshivas and some of your abayim, and maybe what, they've, uh, what you've learned from them. Sure. So I learned in the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva system uh, as a young fellow. I was actually a Rebbe for quite a number of years in a high school in Rochester for 12 years and three years in, in Chavetz Chaim. And I try my best after to uh, imbibe that which my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal Torahs, Musar, Ashkafa, a, hopefully a balanced approach to serving Hashem properly. So you're a Rebbe in Yeshiva. You're no longer a Rebbe right now? I'm retired, an old man. <laughs> no, well, so really, I'll, I'll tell you the story a little bit. It's, it's quite interesting because the Rishi Zetzal asked me to begin an organization for the working guy. He felt uh, that there was nothing for the working guy. If this is a fellow who went to Yeshiva, may have learned a lot, may have not, not much, but point being, he's now in the workspace. And the Rishi Zetzal felt there was not much for them. You know, too young to really be a member of a shul in any real sense. There no organization. So the Rishi Zetzal asked me to start an organization for them. And really, that was Tzvaret uh, Beitoro, which became the Shmuz, and it sort of uh, it eclipsed anything else I was doing. And at a certain point, the Shmuzal asked me to stop teaching and to do this full time, which is what I now do. So we had on um, our first episode for season two of Kolot, uh, uh, someone who you're very close with, Yaakov Shweki, and he and he told he told us about um, the message you told him that if he has a gift, he must share it with the world. Um, yeah. And that's exactly what he did. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you were seeing at the time um, with teenage Bachram, some of the uh, things that were going well with teenage Bachram, with high school students, what are some of the challenges and how that may have evolved over the past years? You know, Kevin, I want to mention something before we even get there. Yaakov Shweki called me up. Now, he was a fellow in Rochester. We were close to tight. He's learning. He's a young fellow. He's learning a base medish. And he calls me up and he says like this, you know, uh, my mother wants me to to start the social work school. Uh, you know, she likes the fact that I'm learning, but uh, she wants me to find a parnasa, something to do. Um, but I don't know if I want to. I want to learn now, et cetera. So, I, uh, you know, but I don't, I don't know what to do. So I said to Miyako, look, this music thing, it's hard to know if it's going to make a living or not going to make a living. But, you know, you, right now you're single. Right now there's nothing wrong with uh, with staying and learning. You'll get married, Mr. Shem, and then you'll see if the music thing actually can be a real substance, you know, something substantial for yourself and your family. Great. If not, then you could always go to social work school afterwards. Well, fast forward a little bit. I think the music did okay for him, and uh, <laughs> he never ended up going to social work school. But okay, that's just an interesting uh, side that flashed a memory for me. Thank you. So amazing. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the things that you saw in Teenage Bachrim? Uh, some of the things that 
you know, may have been challenging for them and how, you know, society may have contributed to that. Wow. Um, you, you have an hour, two, maybe a week, maybe a year. Um, all day. All day. That's a loaded question. I mean, you know, you have to understand something. The, the goal of a high school Rebbe is partly to teach a fellow how to learn, but more than anything, to teach him how to approach life. What does Hashem want from him, what life's about, how to deal with people, how to deal with situations. Um, and I found it a great challenge because, to be honest with you, you know, a lot of what we do, even as adults, is what I call robotic Judaism, going through the motion, just doing because it's done and what other people do. And to actually understand why I do things, what Hashem wants from me, what the reason behind it, and, and to do with a passion and meaning is something that's very, very lacking. So, it's you know, it's really interesting because, you know, the schmooze, which is what I now do full time, really began as in the high school setting. I would say Musa Shmuzim. And Rabbi or Shiva Rochester really gave me a very clear direction in terms of what a Musa Shmuz should do. I sat with him, I said, you know, I was learning there in the Kolo, and I said, Rebbe, what should be my, what's the focus, what's the goal? He says, you want to teach the fellas to think like Jews. Meaning they come from a world that's very open, very accepting, very nice, but the understanding that the Torah is an approach to everything. The Torah is an approach to life. The Torah is an approach to relationship. The Torah is an approach to everything. And to be able to think what does the Torah want from me? What is the Torah's approach? To be able to think like a Jew, that's the goal. So really, the, the shmuzim that I said in high school, um, initially, the very first shmuzim I said you know, to adults were almost word for word the same ones I said to the high school. Now, again, a little bit different audience, a little bit maybe, a little bit some language changes, but primarily the same concept, same idea, because again, it really was the same goal to bring these concepts to life and to really get them to a point where people could hear them. You know, the the word Musser, you know, when everyone, anyone hears that word, um, rebuke. You right, know, rebuke, rebuke, I'll yeah, give yeah. you Musser. Right, everyone, you take a deep breath, okay, what do you have yeah. coming now, right? So what is your philosophy on not just the content, I mean, you just explained, but like talk a little bit about delivery of Musser. Okay, so actually, I'll, as an aside to that, I'll get back to that in a moment, but and my Rebbe Roshiva Zetzal never, ever, ever, ever gave Musa. Never, never rebuked, never criticized, never. And guys would often say, but Rebbe, we want to know, we want to know. Anyway, I was very close to Roshiva Zetzal. And I had a really, uh, I was a pretty tough guy. I was a karate student and I had a lot. And Roshiva had, we had a very close relationship. And, and one time I really pressed Roshiva, Rebbe, please tell me. I want you to tell me directly. I want you to tell me directly. You could say it to me. So Roshiva said, you're right. I could trust you. And he said something to me very directly. It was not harsh. It was not really critical, but he pointed out something that I was doing that I could do better. I have to be honest with you. I love the Rishivas Atal. The, the love I felt was incredible. There was a wedge at that moment. It was like a, I was like pushed away, and it took me a month or six weeks or maybe even two months to really warm up to the same level that had been before. And with those words, Rishivas Atal taught me an even bigger life lesson, and that is the single most damaging Entity to any relationship is something called criticism. Criticism damages, criticism hurts, criticism creates a wedge. I have three rules of criticism. Don't do it, don't do it, and don't do it. Don't do it because it distances people, and don't do it because it hurts. And do, don't do it more than anything because it never accomplishes any good. So the concept of musr and rebuke, musr and criticism, really don't go, at, they have no connection one to another at all. I, I understand that the word is often used incorrectly in that sense, but the study of Musr is the study of the reasons behind why Hashem wants us to do things. The real goal is to get my intellectual understandings and my emotional world in sync. So, for instance, I know that Hashem runs the world. I know there are no accidents. I know that every single activity on the planet is orchestrated by Hashem, down to the minutiae, every aspect of my life. Until a little dog chases me. Ah! What happened? I, I, I'm Amuna, Bitochan, Hashem, Hashem. Yeah, so intellectually, I get it. Intellectually, I know Hashem is present. But emotionally, to feel that is a huge, huge, there's a huge divide between the head and the mind. And the study of Musa, the primary goal is to take those intellectual understandings and bring them to life, to make them real. So I could feel them, I can sense them, I can experience them, and they become part of my essence, part of my operating mode. So that's really the goal of, of a Musa Shmuz, and really the goal of learning Musa, very little to do with rebuke, a lot to do with understanding, a lot to do with, with growth, a lot to do with changing my perspective. So if it's all about, you know, changing perspective and showing what it's all about, 
but never direct at the person um, what happens when it needs to be so they get the message. Or is that the whole idea? Let them get to it on their own eventually? Well, the rule is anything I say will be ignored. Anything I say will cause a wedge. Anything I'll cause will, will just... So I'll, I'll tell you very... Listen, uh, you know, I'll give you a good in- for instance of this. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, though I, I, I enjoy it and consider it valuable, unfortunately, I, I deal with hundreds and hundreds of couples because even though the, the schmooze is much broader than just marriage, but of late, I've been dealing a lot with couples who come to me with trouble, issues, etc. Okay. <clears throat> One time, a fellow says to me, Rabbi Schaefer, can I meet with you? I can meet with him. Okay, sure. So he comes into my office. We sit down. And he basically, he didn't have to open his mouth till I got the message. There was nothing in the world that I could possibly say to this fellow that he would receive. He sits there complaining about his, my, his wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. I sit there. Mm. My wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, mm. my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. He's going on and on and on. Eventually, he runs out of steam. And I say to him, okay, so what are we going to do? He said, well, that's what I came to you for. I said, I don't know, we got a problem. You want to get divorced? No. So what are we going to do? And I sat there, silent, silent. And I listened. And then he said exactly what I would have said, maybe even better than I would have said it. And I sat there listening and listening and listening. I said, all right, maybe let's try it. And he left. I have to tell you something. (laughs) It was one of the wisest things I had ever done in my life. To this day, this fellow calls me up regularly. And we go through the same routine. He calls me up, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. Mm, we got a problem. What are we going to do? I don't know. What, you want to get the word? No. What are we going to do? And then he answers. But you understand what I'm saying to you? He, he knows what he needs to do. If I tell him, immediately he's going to shut me down, reject that, and do the opposite. But when it comes from him, oh. You see, we're very quick to accept our own advice, but very slow to accept others. So the moral of the story is criticism never works. Rebuke never works. Uh, and don't do it because, again, it's it's worse than not working. It creates a wedge, a distance. So how do you say the words? I don't know, but don't say them. <laughs> well, if you don't say them, you don't need to know how to say them. But, okay, so let, let, let's let let's dive deep right now once you brought it up. So um, the book, 10, the book. Very, uh, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that Very Smart Couples. Anyone who's watching, there it is, the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes. But why do I say Really Dumb Mistakes? Because they're really dumb mistakes. A couple sits in front of me, and I go, "What? Are you kidding? You, there's no way you understand what you're doing to the relationship. There's no way you're recognizing the damage you're doing to your spouse." But the problem is, it's couple after couple over 15 years. I would sit there and go, "What? Huh? I just had that last night, and the night before, and two weeks. Ago. What? The same thing." So that that that's what the book is. The ten really dumb mistakes. They're very smart couple because again, they're smart people, very intelligent people, but not recognizing the damage, not realizing what the relationship needs and not realizing what's going on. But I'm sorry, Rabbi Kapensin, I cut you off. Please go. No, that's, this is, I love the passion. Um, so two things. Well, I mean, first let's, you know, get into some of the specifics and then maybe if we, if time allows, if um, we could go to why does it take a book for people to get something that should be so basic? But let, let's. Let, what, what are some of your pet peeves? What are some really dumb mistakes? Okay, let's deal with the very first of the ten really dumb mistakes. The very first of the ten really dumb mistakes is not working on the relationship, not understanding that you need to be in love. You have to remain a couple in love, but to be a couple in love, it means you have to spend time together in a romantic sense, as friends with respect spending time together, bonding, being lovers. That's what you need to be. Now, you know, especially in the Torah world, that seems to have taken a backseat. Now, I I understand we're all busy. We all have tremendously busy lives, and we have tremendous obligations, and and that's even if we don't have a smartphone. But even if we're really good time managers, there's a tremendous amount of things that need to be done. And therefore, one of the things that quickly falls by the wayside is working on the relationship. And I have to tell you this, I've seen this on a regular basis. A couple couple can be completely aligned in life goals. They could be completely aligned in how to raise their family. And they could really have the exact outlook on life. And yet, they're fighting, they're quibbling, they're in distant parts of the world. See, the three pillars to a successful relationship. There's commitment. Commitment is based on knowing that Hashem chose the right one for me. The second pillar of a successful marriage is love. That's the relationship. I'm working on the relationship. And the third pillar, well, the third pillar we'll get to later because the first one, and this is really 
to the number one of the ten really dumb mistakes is not working on the love, not working on the relationship. And that one is very curable, very solvable. But why do you need a book? Because when you read the book and you see that couple after couple don't do this and the trouble that they get into, then eventually, hopefully, you'll get the reason why and maybe you'll start doing some of that. Well, let me jump on commitment for a second, knowing that this is the right one. So that's like one of the biggest um, anxieties that someone has, especially when they're dating. How do I know? Right. So what do you tell people when they ask, how do I know? And if they're married, well, how do I know this was the right one? What do you tell people? So those are two different questions. When you're dating, how do you know you don't? (laughs) Yeah. You can't know. You can't know. I tell people, if you want to know factually, for sure, 100% sure, how do you know that this is the right one? I have a very simple formula. Stay single? No, no, no. I No, I really, I'm not kidding. Around. I have a very simple formula. Yeah. When you and your wife walk your grandchildren down the aisle to their wedding, you know you found the right uh-huh. one. Until then, you don't know. So how do you get married? How do you get married? Like any decision that a Jew makes, you do your proper ishtadlis. What's the proper ishtadlis? There are two parts to it. There's a paper test and there's the Bashar test. The paper test is hopefully before anyone meets anyone on paper, are you guys aligned? Are you looking to raise the same kind of family? Do you have the same general values? Are you looking to live basically the same kind of lifestyle? But that means in broad brushstrokes. It doesn't mean minutia, but in broad sense, are you looking for the same kind of life? You take the paper test. Now, after you pass the paper test, then you take the Bashar test. What is a Bashar test? The Bashar test is the most intuitive instinctual system you could ever imagine you go out you try to be as natural as try to be yourself as much as you can and you're looking for one thing does it just sort of work is there a commonality is there a sense of comfort is there a sense of i i just enjoy being with this person you mean mad passionate love rockets on the fourth of july certainly not it's just a sort of comfort level just sort of it just feels right it feels comfortable rishiva zatzal would ask us all the time do you look forward to the dates Mm -hmm. being with her if you look forward, that's the most important sign because that means there's a certain natural sort of affinity, sort of natural. That is the Bashar test. Pass the paper test and pass the Bashar test, and then you say these words. Do I know for sure? Uh-uh. How am I going to do this? Like every decision that you makes, I cannot make the right decision. I don't have enough information. If I were Elio Novi, if I were a prophet, I can make the 100% right decision. I've done my due diligence. I've done my part. Now I trust the fact that Hashem has brought me to the right one. Close my eyes. Take that leap. And find myself in a better place it's a shame so then let me ask you you know unfortunately we've seen a very high um increase in uh, uh, you know i was going to say marital conflict but let's just call it divorce for now um is that because people did not marry the bashar or they didn't act they didn't act like the bashar i'll tell you how i'll tell you how it works you see God used to be very, very good at this thing called running the world. He used to be very good. He used to be on the game, and he used to find the right matches. But unfortunately, God of late has gotten you know sloppy. He's not a, not on the ball so much anymore. He's not able to kind of match people up any any way, you know the way he used to. You know, yeah, uh, that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is that people are doing things that are not quite in their best interest. And I'd like to share with you. You go through the book, you'll see it. I, I see it all the time. I, if I had a dollar for every time I would say to my wife after meeting with a couple, they're a match made in heaven living in Gehenna. Meaning uh-huh. so much, they're like two peas in a pod. They're identical, except they just don't know how to treat each other. They don't know how to act. And as a result, they're just chafing this, fighting this. So what can I tell you? I believe Hashem is still very good at matching. Hashem still knows what he's doing and running the world. The problem is us. And the problem is the mistakes that we make. And if you want to know why I wrote the book, it's that's the reason. Because so many of the mistakes are so curable. It's not, a lot of times it's not like these deep psychological issues or deep emotional problems. Now it becomes deep and problematic if you're not, you don't deal with them. But when you understand the causes and you understand what she needs, what he needs, you understand what the relationship needs, you understand what, how to, how to improve the situation. Suddenly life is easy and suddenly life changes. It's when you don't understand what you're doing, you keep making the same mistakes. Then before you know it, yeah, who knows where we're at. Okay, so you shared with us your uh, the first really dumb mistake. Can we get to numbers two, three, or four? I got all ten. Yeah. We have time. Yeah, so share with us your pet peeves. You know, in, in order of the, I know you love all ten, but like you know, share with us some of your favorites. Oh, I hate all ten. I dislike okay. <laughs> all of them. Would you like to know which ones I dislike the most? All right. Correct. Yes. Fine. Here's another one. 
Elizabeth Newton earned a PhD from Stanford University for a very interesting experiment. She <clears throat> broke people up into two groups. One she called the tappers, the other called the listeners. She gave the tappers a job to tap out a song. She gave them a list of very well-known songs, Happy Birthday, Star Spangled Banner, etc. And she told the tappers to tap out the beat. And the listener's job was to guess the, uh, guess the, the song from the beat. Okay, now here's the point. <clears throat> Only 2.5% of the listeners ever got it right. And if you think about it, you realize why. If I tap out, it's hard to tell whether that's Happy Birthday, Star Spangled Banner. Okay. But that's not the interesting part. She asked the tappers to guess the odds of the listeners getting it right. Person after person said at least 50%, at least 50%. And the strangest thing, you can watch the tapper as a tapping out the song. She has videos of it, and the listener doesn't get it. And the tapper is incredulous. How could you not get it? But here's what she earned the PhD for, for the understanding of why. You see, when you tap out the song, you can't help but play it in your mind. And when it plays out in your mind, it's so obvious. It's how can you be daft? How can don't you get it? That's a star spangled banner. How could you not? That is probably the second of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. Assuming that what's in my mind is in your mind. Assuming the way I feel is the way you feel. Assuming that my experience defines reality and you have the same experience and therefore the same reality. And unless I'm able to climb out of my own emotional framework and climb into my spouse's, it is very difficult for me to be happily married because I could be the most reasonable person in the world and I could be the most kindly person in the world. But what she's doing is outlandish. It's out, there's no explanation. He's a cruel, cold creep. He's callous. She's flighty. She's, in, she's anxious. Like the, There's no explanation for her behavior. He, what he's doing is completely irrational. And until you're able to climb into your spouse's emotional world, until you're able to climb into their world and experience things as they do, you'll never understand them. And this is the second of the 10 really dumb mistakes, assuming that my experience defines reality. And again, if you don't work on this and you don't understand this, it becomes almost impossible to be uh, to be happily married. And by the way, Rabbi Kapmanstein, here's a very interesting question. What are the two most important words in a successful marriage? Only two, two. words. I, I, th- I heard it. That it's three words. Okay, let me hear. What do you say? I was wrong. Okay, now I was wrong of the three most difficult words you'll ever say in your life. I was, you know, I know I was wrong. She knows <laughs> I was wrong. I know she knows, but I can't say the word. I, I can't, okay, yeah. I agree with you. I, I cannot agree with you more that those are some of the most difficult words to say, but I do not believe that those are the most important words in a marriage. Would you like to know what I believe the two most important words in a successful marriage are? Sure. Okay, here we go. The words, that's strange. Every scientific ex- discovery was preceded by an expression. People think it's eureka. It's not true. <clears throat> Almost every scientific discovery was preceded by the words, that's strange. A fellow makes chemical A and chemical B and got Z. Wait, that's strange. And suddenly he discovers a new formulation. Penicillin was discovered that way. <clears throat> Vulcanized rubber was discovered that way. Most scientific discoveries were preceded by the words, that's strange. Now, if you train yourself to say the words, that's strange, the next time your spouse does something that's inexplicable, completely irrational, you say that's strange, and what you do is you open yourself up to the scientific curiosity of trying to understand the inner world. Why would she do that? She's normally grounded and intelligent. Why would she carry on like that? He's normally a nice guy. Why would he act so cruel, cold, and callous? When you say the words, that's strange, you open yourself up to understand the inner world, now, but let me question you. Say the words to yourself. You don't say it to your spouse. <laughs> you say to yourself, that's strange. And when you do that, suddenly you're able to look from an outsider's perspective. Why would he act that way? He's a nice guy. I don't understand it. And by doing that, instead of reaching the the labels we normally reach for, he's cruel, he's a creep, he's callous, proves, just proves he doesn't love me. And instead, you start discovering he has an inner world different than yours. And suddenly you're able to understand your spouse in a much deeper and much more fundamental level. Okay. So even if one is able to say to themselves, that's strange. And by the way, when you say that's strange, not therefore they're such a bad person. No, that's strange. And therefore I have to understand that. Right. Um, Scientific curiosity, scientific curiosity, but that doesn't change the reality. That was still very difficult or whatever it is, is still very difficult. So how does this scientific, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, endeavor, change things, change the relationship. 
see what a changes is, I'm able to now try to understand my spouse. In other words, listen, I'm not telling you everything is easy, but I am telling you that many times when we 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 paint these pictures of our spouse, and, and you could use your own, whatever adjective you want to use. Some people use demonic phrases. Some people use psychologically imbalanced phrases, but we all got it. And we all have these phrases. Yeah, that's, my, that's my wife. That's my husband. He's just carrying on. What you're doing by doing that is not understanding their needs, not understanding why they're at. And obviously, your reaction to them at that point is going to be very, very ill-received. Let me take, give you an example. Let's say your wife is nervous and anxious. And you say what we men always say to our wives when they're nervous and anxious. There's nothing to be nervous about. Stop it. Cut it. Listen, dear, I, I, I'm, listen, I'm a nice guy. I'm respectful, but there's nothing to be nervous about, right? Now, how helpful is that? Yeah, we do it to our kids too. Don't worry. Don't worry. But you see, it's not just that it's not helpful. It drives a wedge between me and my spouse because it tells her clearly that I don't look at her as regular, normal. I don't relate to her. She's strange. She's uh, difficult. She's like not balanced, not, not healthy. There's something wrong with her. And that message carries a very real, real weight to it. You see, if on the other hand, if I could train myself to say that's strange, she's normally very grounded, normally very responsible. Why is she? Well, it must be because she has a different temperament than I do. Then suddenly I can begin to understand her. I can relate to her. I can relate to her very differently than I do. And my reactions are going to be much more positive for an ongoing good relationship as opposed to damaging. So, um, and, and really, I, I have to be honest with you. You see, this is, I, I said, there are three pillars to a successful marriage, commitment, love. Many, many couples are very, very committed. And they even manage to stay in love. And they really work on it. It's the third pillar that gives them a lot of trouble. The third pillar of a successful marriage is learning to live together. You see, learning to live together requires understanding my spouse's inner needs, understanding that they have a different temperament, different outlook, different perspective, different feelings, different emotions, different way of viewing the world than I do. And that way is 100% as valid as mine. I mean, everyone knows I'm the normal one. Everyone knows my way is the right way. And when you get married, the ability to suddenly recognize that someone else's perspective is, is as equally valid as I may not feel that way. I may not look at things that way. I may not view it that way. But her view is 100% as valid as mine. And I have no right to negate it. I have no right to dismiss it. I have no right to say, just do it my way because I know the right way. And that is a very, very difficult um, growth plateau that many of us get stuck on. Because many, many people get stuck on their own way of viewing things. And it could be a nice guy, but she's crazy. I could be a fine person, but my husband is a creep. So the ability to climb into your spouse's inner world is, is, is key. So let's, uh, let's go a little deeper on learning to live together. So part of li- learning to live together is sharing things together. Um, should a spouse always share everything with their spouse? Are there things they should hold back? Are, there, are secrets allowed? That's a loaded question. It depends who you ask. Okay, I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, because if you ask a woman, the answer, my wife would say, absolutely not. you got to reveal everything. Uh-huh. Even now, my wife is beginning to agree with me that not everything is so wise to be shared. The answer is um, honesty is, is a key. It, it's a cornerstone of a marriage. It's a cornerstone of a relationship. But honesty doesn't demand that everything be revealed. Uh, I'll give you a good for instance. A young man gets married to a very attractive young woman, and she, as the years go by, she puts on some weight. And she's now 45, and she's, let's say, 45 pounds overweight. Should he be very blunt with her? You know, I, I used to find you very attractive, but you're fat and ugly now. You know, I used to find you to be very, very appealing. But now, to be honest with you, I'm turned off because you're fat. And, and you know, I really, it's it's kind of disgusting to me. I really, honest, I just want to be honest because we're we're honest, right? I want to tell you, you know, uh, I'm just not attracted to you uh, like I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's too wise, uh, you know, so, uh, but, but honesty, honesty is the cornerstone of a marriage. Yeah, well, honesty means being honest about things you should be honest about, but there are many things that should not be mentioned. And, uh, and by the way, I'll, I'll let you know a secret. Every human being has got stuff. I got stuff. You got stuff. We all have stuff. I know this for a fact because Hashem created us imperfect. Hashem put us in the world to perfect ourselves, and we all got stuff. 
if each of us would be totally honest with our spouse, there wouldn't be a successful marriage in the world. Because all of, listen, I'm either too late or too on time, or too timid or too bold or too noisy or too quiet, all of this stuff. So no two people are the same. Every marriage is made up of two genders. And you're dealing with people of such different temperaments, different outlook, different perspectives, that it can help but be that there are going to be various traits that my spouse does that I would never do and that bother me. And it can help but be that things that I do that bother her. So if I were completely honest with her and she were completely honest with me, it would be a disaster because uh, guess what? I'd be hearing no end about my problems, my shortcomings, my flaws. She'd be hearing all day about her shortcomings. Bottom line is, don't be totally honest. Honesty is a cornerstone of a marriage, but not every issue in your marriage needs to be discussed and not every feeling that you have should be shared with your spouse. So what happens when you can't avoid the issue? And that kind of takes me where I'm going with this is the concept, uh, concept of Mishana B'Pnei HaShalom, which we find by Avram and Sarah. So sometimes you can't always avoid, right? It's not just not disclosing. Sometimes you have to deal with it. So what, what are the um, first, you know, define Mishana B'Pnei HaShalom, you know, deviating a little bit from the truth and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate? All right, Kevin, I'm going to uh, demur on that question. I'm going to pass that question on to my colleague to the left of me or my colleague to the right of me, because I'm not going to address that issue because it's too much of a slippery slope. The answer is there are times when one should absolutely avoid telling the truth. Um, but I am uncomfortable in a public forum getting too involved in it because it becomes a very, very slippery slope. And before you know it, I'm lying like the, like the rug. And, uh, you know, so I, I'd rather avoid that. I'm sorry to be that evasive, but, uh, <laughs> But I'm going to avoid that one. Sorry. Well, we hope that doesn't become the 11th really dumb mistake because then you'll be forced to weigh in on that. Um, So maybe let me try to answer it and you tell me if I'm on if I'm on to something and I'm not going to be able to answer it with, you know, its totality. But I think it's sometimes, for example, the example that I heard is that let's say a couple's out to eat for dinner and the waiter uh, comes by and takes their order, and then you overhear the waiter say something nasty about one of the two people. And because you went up to get yourself a napkin or something like that, and you overhear the waiter say something, you come back and your spouse says, "What did they just say?" Right? And they, they and the waiter said something nasty about one of the other. You don't need to say what the waiter said. But nasty. The waiter said something nasty about one of the two. Uh, you know, the husband or the wife, and the other oh. spouse. The other spouse. Oh. So you don't need to relay over to what this you can make something up because it, it's two things. Number one, um, it's not productive and it's really not relevant. It's nothing to do. It doesn't have any consequences in the relationship. I don't know. Maybe that's. Uh, I agree. With you. I, I, again, I, I agree with you. And, and there are definitely there are many things that should not be discussed. And many times when it's appropriate, certainly not to say things. And there are even times when it's appropriate to lie. Again, my, my great. Uh, hesitation is that people become very free with that uh they become very liberal with that heter and it becomes a uh, license yeah license to lie you know double when i was a kid the uh, 007 james bond had that was the double double o meant you had a license to kill so if the british government gave you the double o insignia you had the license to kill but otherwise you're not given a license to lie so it's a very um it's a slippery slope, and but again, you're right. There are definitely number one. There are many, many things that should not be discussed. Many, many things. Anything that you feel negative about your spouse probably should be kept to yourself. But how is he going to know if I don't tell him? Number one, he likely knows already. Number two, you're telling him ain't going to change a thing. All it's going to do is get him angry and nasty and start being mean. You know, I have this little theory. You know, if I could, if I could move on for just a second to really dumb mistake number three, can I? Can I do yeah, that? Sure, sure. And really dumb mistake number three. We all do it. And and if anyone's listening to this is married, I guarantee you'll find I'm right. We all do it. We become experts at what a spouse does wrong, and we have this inordinate need to change my spouse. So let's say I'm very neat. It's not just that I, I I'm neat. I need my spouse to be neat. I'm on time. I need my spouse to be on time. I'm I'm very I'm a risk taker. I need my and we each spend such incredible amount of energy, resources, time, and energy to try to get our spouse to change. And here's the interesting part: it never works. But you know why it never works? 
never works because almost invariably it's going to be my strength and my spouse's weakness. So again, I'm a big risk taker and that's my, I feel that's my strength. I'm bold, I'm, I'm brave. And my spouse is very timid. I'm going to try my darndest to get her to be more, not to be so risk averse. I'm going to try to get it and, and it doesn't work, but why not? That's her temperament. That's her nature. She's not going to change. A guy's ADHD out the window. She's going to make it her life mission to finally get him to be organized and on time. It's never going to work. Now, he has to do his best. There are many coping mechanisms, and he has to do his job, and she has to do her job to meet his needs. Et I get that. But at the end of the day, any attempt to change your spouse never works. And the reason it never works is because invariably it's going to be something that's your strength and your spouse's weakness, and all it does is wreck the relationship. So if you want to know really dumb mistake number three, it's trying to change your spouse. And we all do it. We try desperately. We try. We have such a need. And trying to change a spouse never, ever leads to any good. In fact, can I share with you an interesting aside? Yeah. I believe that most marriages have the 20-year rule. First 20 years, it's kind of like this. It's kind of going, okay, okay, okay. Then after 20 years, suddenly it's much better, incredibly better. Mm-hmm. Why is that? It is my firm belief that every young woman, as she walks down that aisle, has a 10-point home improvement policy in place. And that guy under the chuppah is the recipient of that 10-point home improvement policy. Number one, that those ties got to go and those shoes and those dumb jokes and coming late. She has it all worked out exactly the changes she's going to make in his life. Now, we'll give her credit during the first, during the Shevbrach, she behaves herself. But immediately thereafter, she begins on her home improvement policy. And she points out to him how his being messy and 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 late is uh, is causing him not to be efficient. So she points it out to him, and, and she says, Moshe, you know, you're late. If you be more in time, be more efficient. And suddenly he doesn't get all warm and fuzzy. I guess he didn't get it. So she's a little more clear. You know, Moshe, I mean, if you be on time, you'd be much more productive. He doesn't well up with with appreciation, even though she's, I'm only telling because I love him. Uh, obviously, he's not getting it. So she says with a sense of humor, Moshe, how do you even find yourself in that mess? <laughs> and he doesn't laugh. And for the life of her, she doesn't get it. For the next 20 years, she's going to try her darndest to change him, come hook or come crook. And finally, after 20 years, she gives up. He's a stubborn ox. He's never going to change. He, she stops trying to change him, and suddenly he's a nicer guy. He's easier to live with. He wants to be with her more. He's a much nicer guy, and the trajectory of the marriage changes. So and the third really dumb mistake is trying to change a spouse. And I have to be honest with you, women are more guilty about that one than are men. And that's why I said in the female sense over there. Men, if I yell at them, scream at them, rant and rave enough, eventually they, they get it. They stop changing their their their, their wives. But women, yeah, it's, a, it's an emotional need. They can't, I almost can't get them to stop. Okay. So Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. We, we did an episode on the gift of ADHD. It was a great episode. If anyone wants to go to season one with David Becker. Um, and we talked a little bit about the, um, we, we called it the gift of ADHD because everyone is so quick to talk about the downside, but they, they don't realize the potential and the creativity, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, want- I have to interrupt you. I yeah. have ADHD out the window. <laughs> I was diagnosed by my wife and my sister at the age of 40. See, when I went to school, I was just bad. There were no labels back then, no Ritalin, no labels. So yeah. I was just bad. At the age of 40, I found out I was ADHD and you could ask David Becker. I spoke to him about it. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm officially a card-carrying member of the ADHD uh, club. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, no, that's great. That so, ADHD moment when I cut you off and interrupted, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and this is the ADHD generation and the things that are going on in society are really contributing. Everything has to be so fast-paced. So like there's no attention span even if you're not. So anyone who's like slightly predispositioned is going to be very susceptible. But okay, getting to the specifics, getting to the examples that you said. So he's just so not he or she is so not organized. But the house has to function and you're not going to be able to change them. So what do you do? You're stuck. Yep. So you do what Every human being is forced to do. You find solutions. You compensate. You do it a little bit this way, a little bit that way. He does his part. She does her part. As long as you're working together, my way, your way, we find a way. The problem is when it's working against each other, and that's when the problems begin. Listen, life is fraught with many, many issues. And there'll be many, many shortcomings and many, many issues that we all have to deal with. If you're working together as a team, my way, your way, we find way it ends up working out. It's when one has this inordinate need to change the other, this complete mission. I, I like, I'm, I'm not an anxious child. I'm not doing my job if I don't perfect my husband. And many women come into the marriage with that understanding. Um, 
I don't know where it's taught, but I, it, it seems to be taught in the Beishako system that the definition of Ezer Kenegdo is to be the mentor, police lady, mother, Rebbe, I don't know what, Mashkiach of your husband. Um, it's not true. I've, I've searched. I've looked. Rekhamsin, I spent a lot of time. I, I was I learned many years in Yeshiva. I learned to call many years. I was a Rebbe many years. And I spent a fortune of t- time looking up every Rishon, every Akron, every Chazal I could on the concept of Ezer Kenegdo. Not once did I see police lady, mentor, Rebetzin, boss, not one, not nothing close, not even within a million miles of that. Yet every, I can't tell how many times I speak to young women and I say, but if I don't point out his flaws, I'm not doing my job. I'm not being an Ezer Kenegdo. Well, lady, someone taught you the wrong definition of what that means. Ezer Kenegdo means a support, a helpmate. You're a friend, best friends who love each other. Best friends don't beat each other up. Best friends don't criticize each other. Best friends aren't meant as police ladies. Much because, uh, okay, you know what I'm saying? There goes my uh, path. Yeah, no, I, I, the trauma's coming out, I see. But uh, <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, PTSD meeting, yeah. That's right, right. <laughs> we, we had on uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson on, and he said that he loves telling people whenever, and I've said this many times because I just love it, but um, whenever he sees people fighting, he wants to tell them, it's really your traumas that are fighting. So, <laughs> um the um so uh, yeah i want to focus on the proper definition of azer connecto and then we'll go move on to number four um i mean literally azer means to help and connecto could also is not just opposite connecto means corresponding correct uh corresponding i guess you could translate it rashi rashi is very clear what azer connecto means azer connecto means because they're opposite and opposite has two meanings you see an opposite can mean as in Opposite, the Jewish nation were opposite the mountain. Opposite means facing, plain facing, but opposite has another meaning called antithesis, as in opposite, and explains the Gerarie in that Rashi. The reason why marriage is so trying is because both definitions are true. You see, she's an Azer Kenegdo, but Kenegdo means an opposite on the same level but opposite by nature. You see, he explains in most relationships, there's a there's a sort of hierarchy. There's a boss and an employee, a teacher and a student, a father and a son. In any hierarchical relationship, if there's any dispute, so listen, I'm the boss, I call the shot, we do it my way. But that's not the relationship. Equals. Equals means they're equal partners with very, very different views, with very different perspectives and very different outlooks. And understanding that we're equal partners in this marriage requires an awful lot of compromising understanding. And this is probably the biggest so that I try to let couples know. Your job in the marriage is to be best friends who love each other. Reim Ahuvim, that's a bracha we give in the Sheva brachas. Reim Ahuvim, Rashi and Ksuvis defines those words. He says it refers to the Chassan and Kala, who are Reim Ahuvim, best friends who love each other. But friends are friends. Friends don't boss each other around. Friends aren't mentors. Friends aren't police ladies. Friends aren't cops. Friends are friends. Friends mean support. Best friends who love each other. As long as you remember that concept, you'll have a natural, easy time with the relationship. The minute you switch to a different relationship, as in mentor or boss or mother or whatever, you'll find a very interesting uh, backlash, but not a good marriage. So actually, that's a fascinating, Gore Arye. Um, let's, let's just clarify this, because I would love for everyone to you know, take that one home with them, not to share with your spouse, but share with yourself, right? Um, so can you repeat it, that there's two definitions. I mean, right? The word opposite means either opposite as in facing, mm-hmm. or opposite also means as in antithesis, and explains that every relationship typically is hierarchical. And therefore, if there's differences of opinions, the one who's in charge makes the decision. But because marriage is equals, they're opposite, they're on the same plane, and they're opposite by nature. That's why marriage is so difficult. Because if I were the boss, everything's my way. Mm-hmm. I'm not the boss. So if my spouse was identical to me, it'd also be easy because everything would go the same way. The problem is that almost every situation in life, my spouse is going to look at it differently than I. Whether it be how to keep the house, how to bring up the children and be on time or not on time, spend or don't, vacation or not vacation, what time to get up, what type of food to eat. And they're going to be countless numbers of differences and recognizing that my spouse is vastly different than I. By the way, this is not one of the 10 really dumb mistakes. However, I do but sincerely believe, oh, actually it is one of the versions it is. It is my firm belief that almost every couple, 
maybe six months after the wedding, maybe a year after the wedding, either he or she sometimes both wake up and say the words, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. Vihine Hilaya. Hilaya, right. Now, it's true that they're making a mistake, but not that they married the wrong one. The mistake they're making is that the infatuation wore off, and that's when it's time to work on the love and the marriage. See, infatuation is that kind of, he looks in her eyes, she looks in her eyes, woo! Now, infatuation has a real effect on the neurochemistry. They, they measure the changes in serotonin, dopamine, and the changes in neurotransmitters is equivalent to cocaine use. The couple are high. He's perfect. She's perfect. And life is going to be great. And I start off that way very, very well. And everything's wonderful. But after six months, after a year, it wears off. And suddenly they see such differences. And they see such lack of commonality. I made the biggest mistake. I married the wrong one. You didn't make marry the wrong one. The infatuation wore off. And now it's time to work on the love, the bond, the commitment in the marriage. But you see, infatuation was created for a very important purpose. Hashem gave it to a couple for one reason. It allows them to start the process, allows them to begin taking two lives that are so vastly apart and bringing them together in peace and harmony requires a lot of assist. One of the tools that helps for many couples is infatuation. But infatuation has a shelf life, six months, a year, but then it wears off. It's kind of like the sulfur on a kitchen match. You strike it, it flares up, but then the wood has to catch. Infatuation has a shelf life. It wears off. And if you assume that we're going to be madly, passionately in love forever and everything's going to be the same, you're sadly mistaken. The reason why I share this with you is because I believe any couple is going to be so incredibly different. You see, my face is different than your face. Moral tells us, my mind is different than your mind. That means I view things differently. I feel differently. There are 16 different measures of personality type. And bold, timid, extroverted, introverted, risk-averse, risk-takers. Each of us have differences in those. But any difference that you and I have pales in comparison to the difference between man and woman. Men and women are so different in every way, every form, every fashion, what they're interested in, what they enjoy, what they, what they like doing. And when you take two people who are so vastly different and put them together, that's the challenge of marriage because they are opposite on the same level but opposite in nature and temperament, and to live together in peace and harmony, the only way it can work is if they build a real connection, a bond, and that requires commitment, but more than anything, the love and learning to live together, which requires the skills of knowing how to negotiate a a marriage properly. Okay, so that was the explanation on the Gora Arya I was looking for. So great, thank you. Um, Let's go to mistakes, if we have time to get a couple more in, number four and five. So what's the mistake number four? Hey, okay, I'll give you I'll give you another one of the ten really dumb mistakes. A couple are walking down the block. He's walking on the left, she's walking on the right, and suddenly as he walks, he trips. He trips and she says, Oh hey, are you okay? Are you all right, dear? Are you okay? All right, let's call that scene one. Now let's do scene two. Same couple walking down the block. He trips, and as soon as he trips, she says to him, Klutz, what's wrong with you? You can't even walk down the street? What's the difference between scene one and scene two? Uh, just a couple of years of marriage, right? Scene one is the Chassan and Kala. Scene two, they're married already three years. John Gottman, who's a marriage researcher, sure, sure. studies very carefully couples. And here's one of his experiments. He asks a couple to speak to each other, and he very carefully measures everything. He measures their heart rate, respiration. He videotapes it. Then he takes the husband away and brings a strange man to discuss some same topics with the woman. Then he'll bring the husband back and bring a, the woman, ask the wife to leave a strange woman. He's looking to see how we talk to our spouses versus how we talk to other strangers. And here's what he finds. Whether a couple is newly married or married for decades, we are far more polite to strangers than we are to our own spouse. Even more troubling. We'll much more likely disagree with our spouse than we'll disagree with a total stranger. And even worse, if we do disagree, we're far more polite and far more accepting of an other stranger's right to their position than we are to our own spouse. And this is what I call the really dumb mistake number four, forgetting to work on the respect in the marriage. You see, love is vital. Love is the glue of a marriage. But for me to remain in love in the marriage, I have to work on the love. But if I'm not treating you with respect, it's going to be very difficult for you to love me. And as much as you have to work on the love, and that's a romantic piece of going out, the spending time together, the gifts, the love notes, everything that a couple in love need to be doing, at the same time, you have to work on the respect 
And I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen, I've heard couples say things to each other that makes my hair stand on end. Dovid, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Rocky, that's crazy, absurd. Oh, wait, do you guys like each other? Forget love each other. Are you guys like, no, come on, Rabbi, that's just the way we talk. We, we don't expect this to be formal, right? No, you can't be formal, I get that, but you have to have respect. And respect means a please, a thank yous, all the things, you know, I hate to use the Bodkin's line, but you ever hear the couple of, rrr, rrr, and the phone rings. Oh, hi. Oh, dear. Oh, thank you so much. Great. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Okay, bye. You know, you know what I mean? If you speak to other strangers with the civility and politeness that you've learned, make sure that you keep that in the home. And yes, you can't be formal. Yes, you have to be close with your spouse, but you also have to work on the respect. And that is something that requires very real cognizance and understanding the difference between men and women and what they need, what they call respect. That requires a lot of understanding. So you, you touched upon love and respect, and you know that's the famous Chazal, um, you know, right? You're supposed to love her, kigufa, like yourself, and honor her more than you would want. Uh, you would honor yourself. The Rambam, Yavamis, should be the cornerstone of every marriage. I used to talk about it. It's in the book. I quote it in the book. Um, I used to talk about it, but the problem is understanding how that applies in our world. And understanding that men and women interpret love and respect differently is a very uh, it requires a whole whole understanding. But I'm sorry, cutting off my uh, yeah. No, maybe explain why when it comes to love they're equal, but when it comes to respect, it has to be yosemigufa. It has to be more than you would want to be respected. Why is it on the same level as love? Yeah, yeah. All right, it's a very fine question, but I'll I'll ask you a better question. How mm-hmm. come the Rambam and again he's quoting Gemara and Yavamis, doesn't put any obligation upon the woman to love her husband? Husband has two jobs. He has to love her as himself, respect her more than himself, and she has to treat her with a tremendous. She has to treat him with a tremendous amount of respect. Yosemidai, but she doesn't have to love her husband. Is she supposed to be in a loveless marriage? You're not supposed to love her husband. You know, that's the question. Yeah, good. Okay, you would like to know the answer to that question. Yeah. All you have to do is study little girls. Ask a six-year-old girl who her best friend is. She, oh, my best friend, met me. Every six-year-old has a best friend. And heaven forfend if that six-year-old best friend reveals the secret, then it's his best friend and onto someone new. <laughs> girls crave relationships. Girls need relationship. Ask the average girl, <clears throat> when did she start thinking about her marriage? Well, ask a girl. <clears throat> so it's my firm belief that by the age of 12, a girl has a very firm understanding of what her marriage should be like, what it's going to be like, how things are going to be. And <clears throat> when does the average young man start thinking about his marriage? What would you say? <laughs> Closer to the chuppah. I would say five years after the chuppah. Okay. <laughs> now, why is that? Because women crave the relationships. They love their relationships. They have best friends. They, always have, they nurture the relationships. And that's the nature of a woman. And a woman needs to have attachments. She needs to have, guys, get married. They're happy, whatever. You know, and the woman craves the relationship. The stipler writes in the garage. He says, if a woman, woman doesn't know that her husband loves her. If he doesn't know that she that he cherishes her, it's close to Pekot Nefesh. Sakana. Right, because never use that expression because like literally danger of life, and because a woman at the core of her essence needs that relationship, she needs to be loved. If a woman's needs are met instinctively, naturally, she'll love a husband. She doesn't need a command. If a husband cherishes her, if a husband treats her properly, naturally the love will flow. She'll love. Her. You don't need a, to command it. That's natural. On a man, on the other hand, it requires some work. He's got to work on learning to love his wife because it's not as instinctual. It's not as natural. So one of the key distinctions between men and women is that the woman craves relationship, needs a relationship. Woman, the man is happy. Most, by the way, I can't tell you how many times I got a couple in front of me. I'll say to him, "How's the marriage?" Good, Baruch Hashem. I'll say to her, "How's the, how's the marriage?" It's terrible. It's horrible. You guys married like to each other, right? Yeah, yeah. right. The woman needs a relationship. Guys, that whatever. It's good. It's fine. Whatever. Okay. Now, why is that relevant to us? Because when you understand that, you understand the needs of a woman are different than the needs of a man. And here I'm going to become unpopular. Can I become unpopular? Well, we could always edit it out afterwards. So edit you know. it out. Sure edit this out. The men will for sure beg you to edit this out. It yeah. is a man's responsibility to romance his wife. It is a man's responsibility to plan the dates. It is a man's responsibility to buy the gifts, the notes, the cards, the flowers. It's the man's responsibility to romance his wife. I cannot tell you. Baruch Hashem, we're married now 36 years. Baruch Hashem, a great marriage. My wife loves me. I love her. I cannot tell you how many times my wife has given me a love you card. I can't tell you because I don't know if she ever did. But if you would count the amount of cards and notes and things, why is that? 
Why? Because I don't really care. I mean, I know my wife loves me and it's great, but it, I, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to me. <clears throat> but to a woman, she needs that message. She needs to hear again and again that her husband loves her, that he cherishes her. And I believe that most women are insecure about their husband's love. Well, she can be a very secure woman, very put together. But I believe most women in the beginning of their marriages are insecure about their husband's love. And when I say the beginning of the marriage, I mean the first 30, 35 years. You know, kind of like the girl with the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. Most women sit there. He loves me, he loves me. They don't really believe that the husband loves it. And there's one that, 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 that proves, you see, that proves he doesn't love me. So, gentlemen, if you're wise, if you, I say this to guys all the time. Would you like to be happy? And uh, invariably, like, mm, no, we don't want to be happy. Hopefully the answer is yes. A happy wife is a happy life. If you want to be happy, you have to make your wife happy. The way to do that is is a husband's responsibility to romance your wife. You have to buy the gifts. You have to buy the love notes. You have to plan the date. But the date is not every Erev Rosh Hashanah. The date is not once a Yovel, once a week. A couple should be going out once a week to bond, to connect, to spend time together. And gentlemen, it is your job to plan the date. And ladies, you're responsible for the babysitting, the child care. And gentlemen, it is your job to plan it. Well, I told her if she ever wants to go out, just book the restaurant and I'll be there. Wrong. You blew it. The message you say to her loud and clear is, I don't care. I don't really need it. If you send her that message, she is going to be miserable. And guess what? You is going to be one miserable guy because a unhappy wife is a mighty unhappy life. And gentlemen, it is your responsibility to romance your wife. And so many times that single difference, by the way, I did a men's group for 12 weeks. We did a Zoom session about how to properly cherish your wife. And I can't tell you the difference it made in many, many men. It was a large group of people. And the difference it made in their life was incredible because many times everything is aligned. Everything's proper. But a guy gets busy and he forgets to cherish her. If you don't show her in word, deed, and action that you cherish her, that you love her, she is going to feel empty. She's going to be, ugh, and she's going to be very unhappy, which by proxy means you will be very unhappy. Okay, so those are one of the, uh, the the most important things for a husband to the wife. Can you share something that's maybe on the same level from the wife to the husband? Yeah, don't change your husband. Leave him be. He's good. <laughs> don't change him. Don't change him. That was much more simple. <laughs> don't, but you know, it's much more difficult. You know why? Because guys can eventually get it in the romance of wives. Women just can't stop. I, I don't mean to be negative, but I'll explain to you why. <clears throat> a woman has a maternal instinct. She wants to help. She wants to nurture. Mm-hmm. She, she has to help her husband. And what she doesn't realize is it's the opposite. It never helps. It wrecks the relationship, doesn't help him, doesn't change him, just makes things ugly. And and I know it comes from love. And I know it comes from concern. But unless you learn to stop doing it and just bite your tongue, it's going to wreck the relationship. So it's uh, it may come from a good place. It may come from love. It may come from concern. But you got to stop it. Okay, so this was great. One last question. Um, I see you have a lot of experience. You do a lot of um, coaching, helping, whatever. Um, you have letters before your name. You don't have letters after your name. So what is the right time to speak to a Rav? When is the right time to go seek professional help? Okay. The right time to speak to a Rav is always. You have to have a Rav. You have to have direction in life. You have to have direct- but a Rav is essential for marriage, but for, for life. Mm-hmm. First got married. I, again, I was a Talmud for the time she was at Salvador and um, <clears throat> my wife said to me on a regular basis, "Everything, everything you asked the Rishiva, everything." After two years of marriage, she started saying to me, "Maybe we should ask the Rishiva. Maybe we should ask him." Mm-hmm. What she suddenly discovered was, when you make life decisions that you're not really familiar with, you're charting unter- uncharted territory, dealing with issues you don't really have much experience with. It's much wiser to ask people who are older know the lay of the land of wisdom. So a rov direction in life is important for every issue in life, but especially in marriage. Um, so the first stop should be a rov because that's the first stop. Now, there are many times when it goes beyond the ability of a of of a mentor, of a rov, and there's definitely times when it requires intervention, whether it be a marriage therapist, marriage counselors. Um, you have to make sure that you get somebody good. So I recommend you call Relief relief.org because they're very good uh they vet very carefully because not every marriage therapist is uh is all the cut out to to be you know i i think the rule in therapists is one out of five is good i don't know marriage therapist but that's usually the rule in therapists i hate to be that negative i have in my family people are therapists i better be careful 
Um, my daughter's outside here and she's a therapist. She's listening. She's part of the one. She's part of the one. One. She's oh, she's the top two top one percent, right? But anyway, the point you call relief.org and sure. you ask them to make a recommendation because they vet very carefully the marriage therapists who are good of good experience, who you know, they have track records. And then when it's called for, it's it's absolutely necessary and sometimes very, very helpful. So it's uh Hashkacha. Um not by coincidence that you mentioned that we actually have a scheduled Kolot episode with Binyama Babad next week. So uh, what a great setup and plug. Yeah, plug. I plug. I Relief. He's the great. Relief.org and Rabbi Babad's great. So excellent. Kola. How to find the right therapist. Sure. Rabbi Schaefer, it's been an honor and privilege. And uh, keep doing amazing, amazing things. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Thank you. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.